being a Baptist and this church being in the Southern Baptist, there's a certain history. And matter of fact, the Southern Baptists were specifically branched off because they believed slavery, they wanted slavery to continue. And because of that, approximately one-third of all the people in the Southern Baptists were slaves. And by the t- after the slaves were freed, by the time 1900 came around, basically there were no such thing as black people in, in the Southern Baptists. Because they said, well, we're free, we're not going to go back to that. Most of the freed slaves, though, did become Baptists in some form or another. Whether they're kind of like, well, Methodists and Baptists are who they became. You'll notice that because if you go to a lot of the, uh, a lot of the black churches, you'll notice they tend to wear like vestments that look like the Methodists or the Lutherans or the Catholics. That's because they usually came from a Methodist tradition. And one of the things that was great about the Baptists at first was is that you didn't have to, you didn't have to be able to do a written exam to get in. Like the Catholics, technically, you're supposed to go through a catechism, this written thing to get in. The Lutherans, same thing. Most of them, they have a written Baptist, you proclaim. You tell your story and you proclaim and everybody says, all right, we accept you in. So guess what? Slaves who were generally not educated were able to join. The Methodists felt the same thing. It was on a profession of faith. You do a profession of faith, even if you weren't saved before and you confessed it now, they take, they sprinkle you some water, you're saved and baptized, you're a member of the church. So that's why you have things like the African Methodist evangelical church and you have southern many baptist churches that have a very methodist kind of feel to them but the thing is basically in the 1970s the southern baptists had to issue a formal apology apology they apologized for being okay with with slavery now that's a whole other other sermon about what how slavery is viewed in the bible but let me just put it this way and that is slavery is not the way we practiced it in america was not okay slavery is in the bible but it's actually a form of like welfare really is what it would be it was if you had no discernible talent or no no skill you could then come in and you basically worked during the day and they provided you with food and shelter and it was a servanthood. They use the terms a servant, which is a servant or butler, same thing. Now, this was, you were not free to come and go. You had to sign an agreement saying you would work for them, but they would give you food and shelter. You have what's called a bond servant. The bond servant is, if anybody's ever been to jail, they'll know about bonding out of jail. <laughs> and what it is, is basically you owed money and you needed your debt paid off. Or some, there was some issue. You had no money. You were living on the streets. You wanted to get off the streets. And you go to the people and say, hey, listen, I will work for you. Now, the, God instituted a clear seven-year work period. You say, I'm going to work for you. Seven years. You work. You don't get any money during that time. You're being paid by food and, and clothing and housing. At the end of seven years, they have to, the, the person who had you had to let set you free and give you a compensation so you had a, the amount of money you could get to get work somewhere else. So they give you some money, put you on a donkey or whatever, and send you on your way. But they had to do that every seven years. That was a bond servant. 
there is also a form of, they call it a slave, but the slave was still, it could only last for 49 years, and then you had to be freed. In the 50th year, called the year of Jubilee. So the, there was a form of slave that was a 49 year, and that was, again, if, say you owed, say you, you killed one of their, somebody's children, or you killed somebody, and you owed money to them. Or you did something, and you have, again, you have no discernible talent. Like, you don't have a skill, you don't have a thing you can do, and God says, and the person says, okay, we'll bring you in, and we'll let you clean out the stalls and pluck corn. And, you know, for, for nothing, basically. But then when you came in, the person was responsible for you as if you were a child of theirs. If you killed somebody, it was they were responsible for it. If you injured somebody, you, they were the master had to pay for it. If you hurt, if you stole something, the master had to make it right. So they actually, it was a type of like family in the sense that while they weren't related, the master was responsible for everything. And there's even rules put in. You're not allowed to strike them. If you strike them and you cause a permanent mark, you have to let this let them go immediately. Whether they're a slave, a servant, anything. If you strike them in such a way that you're going to leave a permanent mark, they have they get to go. They get to get to, they, you have to nurse them up to health again, and then send them on their way because you struck them. They can't do that. So, if you kill them, it's equivalent of murder. It's not like we're in the south. It's, oh, we own them. We're allowed to do whatever we want with them. No, God's system says if you kill one of your slaves, you're a murderer. That's how it works. So. It was, the system was basically to help keep people off the streets, keep people from being jobless, keep people from being homeless. If you couldn't do anything, at least you could come in and sweep the floors for somebody, and they'd give you a house, clothes, and food. That's what it was. It was a form of, of welfare, basically, to keep people okay. We perverted it completely. Now, because of issues with this, we had... And we, many great Christian men, thinkers, supported slavery the way we did it here in America, and they were wrong for doing it. But that thought process is actually what gave way to evolution. Reason why people like Darwin said, you know what, I think we come from monkey. The reason why is because black people look like monkeys and they're less evolved than we are, so we're better than them. That's what it was. They said, these people look different than us, we're better than them. We need to create a system to explain why we're better than them. Oh, they're less evolved than we are. That's not true. We are all children of God. We are all created. We all come from the same two people. There's no differences that way. Now, even if people, there are people out there that are not racist in the sense that they say one people are better than the other, but we have a group of people that say that, but you shouldn't race mix. It's either the separationism, that you still shouldn't race mix. The problem is that is that in the Bible, they race mix all the time. They race mix all the time. So the first place we're going to go is to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. So that's the fourth book in the Bible, right after Leviticus. Basically what happened here is this is about Noah, and there was a place called Cush that was from a son of Ham. He went down into Africa, and basically he was below Egypt, the sub-Saharan Africa. 
They're called Cushites or Ethiopians, depending on what language you're speaking. The, Keith, the Cushites, again, sons of Ham, went in there. They had a pretty impressive kingdom. And basically, it encompassed everything we think of today as Sudan and Ethiopia and Somalia and Djibouti and even northern Kenya. Then they basically hopped across the Red Sea. That's right on the Red Sea. They hopped across the Red Sea and went into what's now called Yemen. And they created a place in Yemen called Seba or Sheba, i.e. the Queen of Sheba. Now these people were dark-skinned. After they went to Africa for a few generations, they came out dark. They were very dark. Moses, when he was on the run, he married a woman named Zipporah, who was the daughter of Jethro, who was a Cushite, meaning he was born in Africa, but he went across the Red Sea and was living in Media as a, as a uh, priest of God. His name, he's even given the title Raul, which means friend of God, meaning that he was not like a pagan priest. He was actually praising the living God. So he, one of his daughters was Zipporah, who Moses ended up marrying and had two children with. Those children would have been raised, would have been adults, because he was there for 30-something years with them. But the thing is, is when Moses went to free the Hebrews out of Egypt, he didn't bring his wife and children with him. He went there alone with Aaron, his brother. After three months in the desert, Jethro and his son, um, Habab, went ahead in, or Habab, they heard about what had happened, and so they took Moses' wife and children to him. They said they, they went and they traveled to him. Well, after they traveled to him about, like, about three months, all of a sudden, some racism sets in, in the crowd. We're going to start in the 12th verse, in the 12th chapter, in the first verse, and it says, And Miriam and Aaron, now Aaron is, is actually his brother, Miriam is, her, is the wife of Aaron, Whenever the Bible says something like that, the first person mentioned is the one who's instigating it. So, when it says Korah and such and such, it means Korah was the one instigating. Miriam and Aaron. So, Miriam had a problem with this. And Miriam was the one speaking. So, Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. For he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken Unto only Moses? Hath he not spoken by us? And the Lord heard it. Now, what he's saying is she's literally saying, wait a second. You're, 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 an, you're a Middle Eastern man, and you're marrying a black girl. Maybe you don't have as good of discernment as we think you do. Because she's not as good as us. She's got darker skin. That's what she's saying. Verse 3. Now the man, Moses, was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth, meaning he wouldn't even defend himself. He said, if you don't want to follow me, don't follow me. Basically is what he said. Four, and the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and Aaron and Miriam, Come out, ye three, under the tabernacle of the congregation. And the three came out. God rarely appears before people. He usually, even when he's talking to people, he speaks through dreams, through visions, through various things. All the prophets, dreams, visions, various things. Moses, he chose to talk to, essentially face-to-face. 
Now, he said, of course, Moses said, let me see. And he said, you can't see me because you die. But I'll tell you what, turn the other way and I'll show my full glory behind you. And it was so much that Moses, when he came down, the people were scared of him because his radiance was broken off. But God chose Moses and he spoke to him like a man. Face to face, basically. And God heard this and God was so angry. God himself said, that's it, come out of the tent and stand here. And it says in verse 5, And God came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle, meaning there was a physical presence. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. He was so angry about this that he came down and, and, and stood in a form. Now, they can't see him because he's, he's transfigured. He's in his, he's, so essentially, it's like it'd be like seeing this cloud, and it's just like so bright your eyes can't figure out what you're seeing. But he came down and stood himself. To deal with this. He wasn't speaking through a person. He's speaking for himself. And he stood the tabernacle and he called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forth. And he said, hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I the Lord will make myself known unto him in a vision. And I will speak unto him in a dream. Meaning from now on, I'm not coming to anybody ever again. It's going to be visions and dreams. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him I will speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, meaning just say it, and not in dark speeches, and in the similitudes of the Lord shall he behold. Meaning I'm not going to make it veiled, I'm going to say it, and he's going to be able to see a figure when he's talking to me. Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? He's saying, I speak to him personally. Why are you not afraid to speak against him? Nine says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off of the tabernacle. And behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said unto Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us wherein we have done foolishly, wherein we have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, of whom the flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. He's saying that she literally, her skin was about to fall off already. And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. And the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had spit in her face, then would she not be ashamed for at least seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp for seven days, and after that let her be received again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days, and the people journeyed not until Miriam was brought in again. And afterward the people removed from Hebron, Hebroth and pitched in the wilderness of Paran. So God said, which I love the wordplay there, because God, she said, we don't like her because she's an Ethiopian. She's black. And God said, you don't like someone being black? I'll make you white. <laughs> That's what he did. He said, you don't like her being black? I'll make you white. So white your skin is falling off you. But God is not. God was angry over this. God was, and, and, and again, we know this that because the way they say with the Ethiopian, that means black. In the Bible, when they say such such was an Ethiopian, that's their way of saying they're black. So what is, what's the issue? There was racism and there was segregation going on with that, and God was not pleased with it. 
Now, I have people in my family who were who have very strong racist tendencies. And I somehow didn't pick up on it for a while because I was raised in the inner city around blacks and Latinos and Asians, and I didn't pick up on it until we moved to a suburban white neighborhood. And for the first time, I had really realized, wait a minute, people in my family are actually a little racist. You know what? Some people, it's bred into them. It's, it's, it's nurtured into them, whatever the case is. Some people, you know, <laughs> I have somebody who said that I forget what the, what the nationality of the person was. And he said he didn't like anybody of that nationality. Why? And he said, because I dealt with them and I didn't like them. Sometimes the worst thing you can do is deal with the people because then you really don't like them. The issue is, though, is that it should not be based upon race. It should be based upon the merit of the person. It's just based upon the merit of the person. There's no... We're all of one blood. There is no divisions among the people. Now, racist... Religious folk, dumb racist religious folk, will throw up at you things like they'll say, well, God says specifically not to intermarry in Deuteronomy 7. So let's go to Deuteronomy 7. It's just a few more pages in your Bible. Over. Deuteronomy 7, and we'll start at the beginning of it. Verse first, God, and it says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Gigashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hevites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. I do want to point out all of these nations, these are the ones that did things like human sacrifice, child sacrifice, um... They had groves where they would do weird, like, there's, there's these groves where they would take and they would do, put like, basically like corn kernels, like seeds, and a dead fish, and menstrual blood, and like put it in the ground, and that was their fertility, to make the women be fertile and be, to make the ground be fertile. And they worshipped a fish god, basically. And they would do all kinds of crazy stuff. There were Astroth poles where they were performing sex orgies to these, to these gods. There were, again, altars. On those altars, they weren't, worship, they weren't burning animals. They were burning, burning children. They were burning children. Second verse. And the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee. Thou shalt smite them. And utterly destroy them, and shalt make no covenant with them, nor show any mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter shall not, shalt not give unto thy son his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and destroy thee suddenly. And thus saith Thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their groves, and burn their graven images with fire. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto them himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now, what is he saying? He's saying you cannot marry these people who are doing these pagan stuff. You can't. Here's the, 
when they went in and they took over Jericho, Rahab was a harlot who lived on the wall. She was of the Jerichoites. She lived there with them. Guess what? She's listed as being in the genealogy of Christ. So does that mean they're not? Well, no, because the moment she believed in God, believed in Yahweh, believed in Jehovah, she became a follower of God. And therefore, she's allowed to marry. What he's saying is do not marry people who are still worshiping their pagan gods. You're not supposed to marry somebody who's a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or whatever. They should be a Christian. Why? Because they will turn your heart away from God. They'll infect, they'll slowly... This, I mean, most Buddhists and Hindus are very decent people and they have very calm lives. Well, they'll slowly but surely, you'll, you'll start to mix the two things together. God says, that's not okay. I want you to worship me. So when you go in... If they're still practicing this stuff, you don't do anything with them. Now, there's, again, like we said, Rahab believed in God. So guess what? She's fine because she's not one of these. As soon as she believed in God, she's, there was a mixed multitude in the congregation. There was Egyptians and Cushites and all these people in the congregation along with the Hebrews. So it was already mixed to begin with. The reason why God's saying you can't marry them is because they're currently worshiping other gods and other idols. Now, that's one that, the reason why people throw that out is because nobody ever goes and reads it. They just say, well, yeah, the Old Testament's the Old Testament. I mean, it is what it is. God was a little bit mean back then. That doesn't change. He still feels the same way today. I mean, the New Testament says, do not be unequally yoked with sinners or unbelievers. Same concept. So, now if you make a mistake and you're married to somebody, if they're pleased to live with you, live with them. Through being with them and being a good example, you might get them saved. But you might not. But don't let them sway you from your belief in God. And that's the thing, especially that happens all the time with women. If women will marry a guy who's not, and the woman lets the guy keep them from church. If he's not, don't let him keep you from... You're only to put yourself under a man if he's following God. If he's not following God, the second that man is not following God, you have no obligation to follow him at all because you're following God. So if you're following only God and he's not following God, you can't follow him because he has to be following God. So you're called as a woman to put yourself under God. So do not subject yourself to a man who is not following God. Even if you're married, there's, no, there's nothing for that. You don't have to follow what he's saying. You should respect him, not because he deserves respect, but because simply God said respect each other. That's it. He should still be respected as being, if he works, respect the fact that he works. If he provides, if he's a good father, respect the fact that he's a good father. You don't have to put yourself under in subjection to him, and you definitely don't allow yourself to be taken away from God and not going to church, not bringing your children up in church because of him. That's something we just don't do. That's because he's not under God, therefore you're not obligated to put yourself under him on that. Now, a smart racist, who, and I'm saying that because I actually know a certain, well, he's not Baptist anymore, but a certain pastor I know, throws out Acts 17, 26. So, we're going to go to Acts. This 
is a terrible, terrible example because this is in the middle of a speech by Paul on Mars Hill, also known as Oropagus, which was basically a mountain that had just ton people would go and they would make theological points. They would just argue. The Greeks actually had people, they would just spend their whole day just arguing with each other about nothing except philosophy and gods and stuff. And Paul decided he was going to go to, Arop um, to Aragopolis and try and reason with the Greeks by using their own methods. He actually was, he failed, by the way. He didn't get any converts by doing this. So he returned back to his normal way, which was just proclaiming the gospel. But in this, if we start in Acts 13, uh, 17 and we go right about the 22nd verse, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with an inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. He's saying, listen, you guys are far too superstitious because you're, you're trying to worship every god in case all of them are right. So much of the fact that they put up an, an, an a altar and they said, this is to the god we forgot in case we did forget one. We'll worship to that one too. And Paul's saying, you don't need to do all that. You don't need to do all of that. So he's saying, you guys are far, far too superstitious. And he says, 24 says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breathes breath and all things. Meaning he's saying, God doesn't need you. Don't worry about if you're forgetting to worship God because God doesn't need you. You're not doing him any favors. As a matter of fact, you need him because he gives you the breath in your body. 26. And hath made of one blood all nations. Now I want to stop here. The word nations in the King James Bible in the Greek is ethnos. Might sound familiar because it's where we get ethnicity from. But it means nations. It does not mean a race of people. It does not mean a specific grouping. It's referring to as people group themselves, meaning city-states, Greeks, Rome, the Israelites, the Egyptians. As you group yourself, you're a nation. You're an ethnicity. That's not a race. That's not, and a matter of fact, back at this time, God, the way they determined who, what ethnicity you were and what nation you came from was by the language you spoke. Not by the way you looked. This, and again, this can be proven. We're not going to do it because I don't want to go that long. But this can be proven by the fact that when Paul was out doing his missionary journeys and he was proclaiming the name of God, the centurions arrested him. He was speaking in Greek and the, the, the centurions arrested him and said, this guy's a rabble rouser. And it says simply, Paul spoke to him and said, I'm a Roman citizen. And the man immediately apologized and seeked forgiveness. What would Paul possibly say? 
if you if I was arresting you for being a rabble rouser and you just said you can't, I'm um, Canadian, I'd be like, and you got a passport? No, I don't. Okay, you're going to jail anyways. Paul, you know what Paul did? He spoke in Latin to him. He spoke in the proper classical Latin to him and spoke the way a Roman would. And the Roman guard knew the only people who are trained in this are people who are trained in the elite level of Roman society. And therefore, when Paul said, I'm a Roman, he spoke Latin to him. And they said, oh, I apologize. Realizing that he was classically trained, meaning he was somebody important. So the way they determined nations back then was by your ethnicity. So if you spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, you were Jewish. If you spoke Greek, you're Greek, you're Grecian of some form. If you spoke some other like vulgar language, language in between, they would call you a Gentile. If you were spoke a Latin, they called you a Roman. That's how your ethnicities were determined, was by speech, by language, your native language. Now, 26 says, And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and he determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. People go, see, the bounds of their habitation. No, Paul is saying the only reason why nations rise and nations fall is because God wants them to. The only reason why he determined before time that, because if you think about the way it works, you had, you know, like the Babylonians come up and then they're taken over by the Persians and the Persians are big, and they're taken over by the Greeks and the Greeks are big and they're taken over by the Romans. It just keeps happening and happening. Why? Because God determined it to be that way. God had a reason. God needed the Persians and the Medo-Persian Empire to come up because he needed Cyrus to come in and free the Jews. So God raised up Cyrus to free the Jews. Well, then he didn't want the, Greek, the, the Persians to be around. He needed the Greeks to come. So he let the Greeks do it. When Paul's talking about he's saying he appointed and determined the times before and the bounds of their habitation, meaning their nations. He's the one who determined how far they would go. The reason why the Greeks made it to India, and no farther was because God said, that's all the farther you're going to get to go. That's what Paul is saying here. The 27th verse says, that they seek the Lord, if haply, meaning just, you know, haphazard, if they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that God, the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone graven by a man, by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Meaning, what this is saying is God's saying, in the past, God just said, listen, if you ignorantly do things, but you have... You, you're following the living God. God, the question of what happens to people over in, in Africa who've never heard the name of Jesus? When they die, do they go to heaven or hell? The answer to that, God reveals himself to people 
in a way they can understand in the time they understand according to his means and they get to choose to follow. We know this because you can go to like, there's, there's, they found tribes in, in the Amazon jungle that are living there. They've been to this day to just recently, they didn't know we're there. You go in there and they say, oh, these people are like headhunters and they eat people and they're cannibals and stuff. Yeah. And guess what? Not everybody's cannibals there. There are people who are living differently. There are people who say, yeah, that's the dominant culture, but I don't do that. I worship God. I love my God. Those people, when missionaries come in, all they do is say, hey, you know, we got this. They don't even have to they say, hey, you know, there's this guy, Jesus. He lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and you can be saved if you believe in him. They get saved. Why? Because they were already saved. God revealed himself in a way that they can understand. Christ revealed himself in a way they can understand in their culture and their time so they could separate themselves, though they separated existence from their dominant culture and not be a part of their dominant culture. Therefore, they are saved through a means God determines, through Christ. It's through Christ. He reveals himself to them. But now what Paul's saying is saying, so God was okay with certain things, and people could do certain stupid things. The, Jew, the Jews were not allowed. The Jews were not allowed to worship weirdly. But people in other places, you're allowed. Paul's saying, but because I'm standing here proclaiming the name of Christ, now you have to name, listen, understand, and believe in the name of Christ. See, when they didn't have the name of Christ, they don't have to call on the name of Christ. God reveals himself to them. He's okay with that. But once you've heard it, once you've had the gospel presented, you have to make the decision to believe in Christ. That's how it works. So Paul's saying, because of me, you guys are no longer allowed to be ignorant because I'm presenting the gospel to you. And now because of me, you have to make a decision, Christ or not. Now, this group of people didn't make a decision. They just kicked him out, basically. <laughs> Said, no, we're fine. But, but so, because even that, where he says, at times past, God winked at. He's talking like a, like a child, little kid who does something. They're trying to mimic you, and they do it poorly. And you go, oh, isn't that cute? That's what he's saying. He's winking at you. God does that to people when they do things ignorantly. When they want to worship him, but they do a bad job. God's not at it, not, not mad at that. He winks at it. He's, ah, you know, good job. But now, but once the name of the Lord is proclaimed, once the name of Christ is proclaimed, you have to make the decision now. Somebody who's never heard the name of Christ, God will provide a way for them to be saved. But once you've heard the name of Christ, you have to believe in Christ. Because the people who haven't heard the name of Christ, don't worry about the second in the Trinity, Jesus. He reveals himself to them in a way they can understand. God is not a respecter of persons. He presents to all people. He judges fairly on all people. Now, from here, even though it's been a little bit long, and I apologize, I'm going to hit this last point, which is one of my favorite books of the Bible is the Song of Solomon. I'm really a sucker for poetry, and I just, I love it. I love all of it, the Psalms and the Proverbs, and I love it all. The Mormons actually claim the Songs of Solomon shouldn't be in the Bible because it's pornographic. Because it has some very forward language. But I believe that it shows the true unbound love and anticipation for the time to come, for the afterlife. Basically, it's a mirror of how we should treat being saved 
and getting to see heaven. And likewise, it is a mirror of how we should treat our spouses. You should long to be with them. You should love them boldly and proclaim the love. They shouldn't have to wish that you would say you love them. Just say you love them. Be open. Be forward with it. Don't make the spouse beg for a compliment, basically. <laughs> Tell them. So, we're going to go to the Psalms of Solomon. It's right after Proverbs. You have the Psalms. You have the Proverbs. You have Ecclesiastes. And you have the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs. Solomon was married 700 times. And all total, he slept with 1,000 women in his lifetime. He was very much into sleeping around. Only one woman did he ever love at any time. And she's written about in this. It's a love song between the two of them. It's actually based upon an old Lebanese wedding song. But he took and worked it and reworked it a little bit. And they sang it at his wedding. Him, his wife, and the congregation. And they go back and forth in it. However, when we read this, I'm going to read, starting in the first verse, it gives us a, it gives us a, uh, a sign of how we should anticipate love in both physically and with God. Starting in the first verse of Songs of Solomon, chapter 1. The Songs of Solomon, which is Solomon, the Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. Because of the savor of thy good ointments, thy name is an ointment poured forth. Therefore, do the virgins love thee. Draw me. We will run after thee. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will be glad and rejoice in thee. We will remember thy love more than wine. The upright love thee. Five. I am black, but comely, meaning lovely. O ye daughters of Jerusalem. As the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Kedar, they were a nomadic Ishmaelite tribe that dwelt out in the desert and had these really dark brown to ashy black uh, tents that they would set up. And that's how you would know who they were. So the, they, she says, Five, I am black, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon, Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loves, where thou feedst, where thou makest thy flocks to rest at the noon. For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of thy companions? She's saying, you're gorgeous. All the people around me make fun of me because I'm black. Why would you want me? Love is colorblind. It doesn't know. Some people like certain things. So you, this person doesn't like, white woman doesn't like being a black woman, be with a white person. This person likes people with red hair, be with someone with red hair. This person likes people with no hair, be someone with bald. It's up to you. But love is colorblind. And this word here, I love this because like the NIV and ESV, they, turn, they change it, say dark. The NIV says dark. The ESV says, I am very dark. No, the word here is black. And I'll point that out because 
in the fifth verse, in the fifth chapter, in the eleventh verse, it says when talking about Solomon. Let's actually we'll, we'll just we'll put this. Uh, We'll start in the 10th verse. It says, My beloved is white and ruddy, meaning he has color in his skin, his redness in his face. The chiefest among ten thousands. His head is as a fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. The word black there is the exact same word in the Hebrew as she uses to describe herself. So she was black as a raven. Anybody know what color a raven is? They're pretty dark. His hair was black as a raven. She was black. And he, she even points out the fact that he was whiter than most men in that area. He's saying, she's saying, most of the men here are tan. You're white, Solomon. Which basically what that means is he was so, he was so luxurious, he wasn't out in the sun very much. He was white because he was living indoors. He was living in, in palaces and doing work inside, so he didn't get to see the sun. So he was lighter than most. So he's saying, you're whiter than most men. I'm black. And yet we love each other. This is one of the, I, I, I just, Songs of Solomon, one of the greatest poems ever written. It's gorgeous. It's lovely. It is the wording, the, the, the meaning, the passion, Everything about it, I'm a sucker for poetry anyways. I love it. It's one of the greatest poems of all time. And God chose to put it in the Bible. And what is it talking about? It's talking about the love between a white man and a black woman. If a person says, well, I don't think it's okay, that's fine. It's their prerogative. They can believe whatever they want to believe. I do not tell anybody you need to believe anything. You don't even have to believe... I, I, I wish everyone would believe Christ and be saved. You don't have to. I'm not going to force you. I believe everyone would believe what the Bible says, and that is what? It's okay to interracially marry because we're of one blood. If we weren't of one blood, we wouldn't be able to cross to interracially breed. We can. Why? Because we're one blood. We have one set of ultimate parents, Adam and Eve. The Bible chose, God chose with the Bible to put in one of the greatest love stories of all time. And it's an interracial couple. People can choose not to believe it if they want to. That's up to them. But I believe every word of this book. And this is my final authority. And God says, there's nothing wrong with it. We're all people. Again, if somebody doesn't want to, then don't. If you don't want to be around a certain people, then don't be. You're free to do what you want to do. You can be saved and be racist. Just don't say the Bible says this. If you go to say it, say, I believe, or I personally think, because the Bible does not say it. The Bible says God is not a respecter of persons, and God loves all equally because we are of one blood, and we are all covered under one blood. So, as we go on, the reason why I brought this is because these are questions. These are ways to answer. Somebody says something to it. Again, you don't have to argue with them. You don't have to fight with them. But if they're going to say the Bible says, and you want to give your stick up for the Bible, go ahead, by all means. Point them to the Songs of Solomon. Point them to Numbers. Show them that God does not 
care about the outside. God cares about the inside, the heart, the mind. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. The rest is for us to figure out. Let's bow our heads today for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day and for this time, for the people that have come out. Thank you for this message. Thank you for giving us such a clear scripture that makes so many questions that people have just so obvious if we're willing to read it and willing to accept it. May anybody who hears this or anybody that experiences this, may if nothing else, it give them an assurance in life that you love everyone regardless and that we need to treat people well.